passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It's good to be back with you. We are sorry about that little bump we had last week. Uh, it was on Thursday night. I had been actually uh, in an event I had to be part of a week before, and on Thursday night, I got the call that the person I was sitting next to uh, had just tested positive for COVID, and I probably had it, and that meant all the staff that I was with all week had it, and so we had to make that crazy choice to at the last minute cancel things last week. But the good news was I didn't test positive. I tested negative, which means God is either really gracious or I have a great amount of nasal hair. So I'll let you guys take a choice on which one it was. But uh, So that was really good. Anyway, we are going to get back into our study of God's Word this morning, and we are going to turn to the book of Philippians. We were in Philippians two weeks ago, and we have been studying the humility of Jesus Christ. He's the example of humility that we want to follow. And we learned two points of application uh, in that study. We learned that humility in the church is what produces unity in the church that when you have humble people, you don't have divided people. And usually when you have divided and bickering people, if you get down to the root of it, it's usually because there's an issue of pride in people's hearts. The other thing that we learned as we looked at humility was that we learned that humility is actually the pathway to great reward. Uh, Jesus, who was the most humble one out there, <laughs> Who did, he went from being the absolute top to being the absolute bottom for us, was rewarded immensely by God by giving him the highest position in the universe and the highest name in the universe. And Paul challenged us. He says, when you choose to follow the path of Jesus and pursue humility and consider others better than yourself, and look not only to your own interests, but to their interests, it's not a losing proposition. Folks, it's a winning proposition. It is the pathway to reward from God, just like Jesus Christ. Today, as we go back into Philippians, we're going to look at two different things about following Christ. We're going to learn what Paul says about how we work out our salvation and then he'll talk about something that is probably a little too close to us. The importance of our attitude and not being grumbling, whining people. And I know all of us struggle with that. So I'm going to turn in our text to Philippians chapter 2. If you have a copy of God's Word uh, that you are comfortable using and you want to follow along, go ahead and do that. I'd ask that you would stand out of reverence for the Word of God as we read it. I'm going to be in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. And do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights 
in the world. And that ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. First thing we're going to look at is working out our salvation, and then we'll get into the next major point, which is what Paul says about this issue of grumbling. Let me reread the first two verses, which have to do with we work out our salvation. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out our, your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm going to study these verses a little differently. First, we're going to look at the big principle that is going on in these verses. Then I'll dive in and look at some of the individual words in these verses, which will bring those principles out in greater clarity and color. What these verses are answering is the question of how do we grow in Christ? Where does spiritual maturity come from? Is spiritual maturity something that I do, or is spiritual maturity something that God does in me? Is spiritual maturity up to me, or is it up to God? First John tells us that when we are born again, then there's a new life inside of us, but then that new life that is inside of us should begin to come to the outside of us. It should change our actions. It should change our behavior. It, we should have a, a now struggles in fighting with sin. We should have a love for God's word. And in fact, the only way you genuinely know that there has been change on the inside of someone's heart and they've been genuinely born again is because you see a change on the outside of their life. And if you don't see a change on the outside of their life, there's no reason that you should be assured or confident that there was a change on the inside of their life because there's no evidence. Now, these verses answer the question, where do these changes in our life come from? How much do they come from God? How much do they come from us and us choosing to turn away from sin? Us choosing to read our God's word. Now, I'm, as I get into this, I want to give you examples. They're historical examples of two people who took, or two groups, rather, who took the poles, opposite ends of the spectrum in that question. The first group is called the Quietists. The Quietists originally were the Quakers, by the way. And this is what they would say. The Quietists claim Christians are passive in their spiritual growth. They would literally say there's nothing we have to literally do to become more like Christ. Quietists historically said you need to put no effort into it, no self-discipline on it. All you want to do is focus on being more surrendered to Christ. If you can become more surrendered to Christ, then you automatically become more like Christ. And maybe you've heard some some of the catchphrases of quietism that still go around the church today. Have you ever heard people say, oh, just let go and let God. Just let God do it. And as if you just don't have to try or do anything. The picture that quietists have of how a Christian maturity works is sort of like a wet spaghetti noodle. You ever drop one of those on the floor, just goes flop? 
there's no rigidity in that noodle. No, there's nothing in that noodle. It just sort of flops there. And the only way that noodle moves is if somebody moves it. And that's what they would say is a picture of Christian maturity. All we do is flop like a piece of pasta into Jesus' hand and that he does everything on us. We just have to learn to completely surrender to him. And if he would just learn to trust him, we would grow in him. Interestingly, they would say there's no need to memorize Bible verses, no need to have regular Bible reading, no need to really have an accountability partner when you're struggling with sin, no need to do that. Just learn to surrender to Jesus, and Christian maturity takes place. Probably the most famous hymn from the Quietists is this one. Do you remember this? I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender Holy Spirit, take me and use me. I wrote this down. Let me feel the Holy Spirit. Truly know that thou art mine. I surrender all. And there you have maturity. Now, I'm going to tell you that I don't think the quietists produced many spiritually mature people. But there's some truth in there, as you'll see in a moment. The opposite reaction to them was a group known as the pietists. And the pietists claim that Christians are very active in their spiritual growth. Pietism actually began in the 18th century in Germany. It was a reaction to the dead orthodoxy of the Lutheran churches. And they had a very strong emphasis on things like Bible study, holy living, scripture memory, the importance of being regular in worship and regular in church. And while the quietists said it was all about surrender, the catchphrase of the pietists was this. Christians should use all of their mind, all of their hearts, and all of their efforts to pursue godliness. And that spiritual maturity sometimes is going to be really hard and tough work. I'm going to tell you that generally on the balance of things, my opinion is the pietists are right. But I also want you to know that sometimes the pietists took things a little too far. Some pietists said that all spiritual growth is based on our own efforts and nothing more. And so then they sort of became what I called the prideful pietists. That they are the ones who have caused all the spiritual maturity and all the spiritual growth inside of themselves. Quietists, I surrender and trust and do nothing. Pietists, I do everything. Now, what is the right answer? Where does spiritual maturity come from and take place in your life? These verses we just read provide the answer. I'll read them slowly. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul sounds like a pietist right there, doesn't he? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now he sounds like a quietist. The answer is both. Both are true. For us to grow in Christ, folks, we need to make choices. We need to choose to read our Bible. We need to choose to pray. We need to choose to be a regular attender in worship. We need to choose to turn from sin. But as we make those choices, 
God is also at work in us, giving us the ability and the strength to make those choices. The picture I like to use, and I'll go back to this a number of times, is like bicycle pedals. God is on one pedal, and we're on the other pedal. And we make some choices, and then God gives us the strength and ability to make those choices. God prompts us to change from sin, and he pushes on one pedal, and then we obey him, and we go to change and, and turn away from sin. So what happens is spiritual maturity is us and God working together at the same time. Incidentally, we don't find this balancing back and forth of quietism and pietism just in this particular passage in Philippians. It's all over the Bible. And once you have that uh, frame of reference, so we work, and yet it's also God works in us as we work, once you see that, it, it explains this constant tension that goes back and forth. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul says. That's the quietism. And then he says, And for this grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. There's the pietism. And then he goes, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That's back to the quietism. Another example. Colossians 1, 28-29. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's Paul's pietism. And then he continues. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works in me. That's quietism. One more. I'll give you a section from Peter, or Second Peter. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God has given us everything for godliness. That's quietism. But then as you keep reading in 2 Peter, Peter says this, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the bicycle pedals going around? We work, and we have to make choices for maturity, but yet God works in us at the same time. That is how spiritual maturity takes place. I promised you we'd look at this as an overall principle, and then we'd dive back in and look at some of the pieces of these verses that, to elucidate that principle. So let's go ahead and do that. Uh, we are to work out our salvation, is what Paul has said. Now, what does this mean to work out our salvation? We work out of us the salvation God has already put in us. In the Greek, this work out is in the present imperative tense, which actually is very important because it means a continual action that doesn't have an ending point. It's not like you try to grow in Christ once in your life when you're in your 20s, and then you just sort of go on coast mode until you're 92. 
It's a continual process of pursuing spiritual maturity. The idea of working out, I put this in your outlines if you have it on your phones. Working out is an ancient mining term. It means to unearth what is already inside. If you owned land and you wanted to get the uh, gold and the gems out of the land, technically you already owned the gold and the gems that were in the land, but you had to do a lot of hard work to unearth those things that were already yours and bring out of the inside to the surface so they were seen on the outside. So when Paul used this term, work out your salvation, they instantly connected in their mind the hard work of mining to bring the gold and the gems that were already, part, already owned by the person in that land to the surface of that land. And that is a very apt picture of what spiritual maturity is. When you and I trusted in Jesus Christ, we were born again. The Bible says that God literally made us a new creation on the inside of us. But there's a difference between what's inside of us and what's been brought to the surface on the outside of us, isn't there? <laughs> now all of a sudden you have to work out your salvation. Colossians chapter 3 talks about once you're born again, there's a new struggle that happens in our life. A struggle between the old man and the new man. The old nature and the new nature. And you have to starve the old nature and feed the new nature to bring out of our lives the new person of Christ that is now in our lives. The main point I would like to, you to remember from this is that working out our salvation is not trying to gain what we don't possess. It's just bringing out of us what we already do possess. Isn't that amazing? The very character of Jesus is inside of us. And what we are to do is bring that out of us. Not try and manufacture what isn't there, but bring out of us what actually is there. He also said we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I want to make this point. Working out our salvation begins with a healthy fear of God. What does it mean to fear God? Some people dive into that and think that means you, we should be terrified of God. Where I think maybe a better way to think of that is we should have a healthy respect for God. Today you hear people that sort of treat God like he's their personal friend. Like he's sort of like Elmo off Sesame Street or Barney, the, the, the purple dinosaur, that he's cute and he's cuddly. That kind of attitude towards God is not going to produce maturity in God. God is God. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe, and we should have a healthy respect for who he is. We exist because of him. He's not off Sesame Street. Look what uh, the proverb says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we consider sin, we should seriously be afraid of disappointing God. We should be afraid of being judged by God. And we should be afraid of being disciplined 
by God. If you do not have fear of God, that healthy fear of God, you cannot have maturity in God. It is no different between the relationship of a child and a parent. A child needs to have a healthy fear of their parents. They need to have a healthy respect for their parents. They should be afraid of disappointing their parents. And we all know that if a child doesn't have any respect for their parents and any fear of their parents, do they mature? Absolutely not. They turn into a bunch of crazy brats. And if that's true with the children that we have, it's true also for us in our relationship with God. We have to have a healthy respect for him and a fear of him. I like the way Hebrews says this. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. And then he describes what acceptable worship is. With reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And he is reaching back, the writer of Hebrews, into the giving of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what it was like when God came down the mountain? I know some of you are very schooled in the scriptures, and you know that the mountain was consumed with fire and smoke. And God's people on the base of the mountain trembled in fear, and they actually begged for God to stop speaking to them rather than continue to ask God to speak to them because they were so fearful. Now, today, I'm just going to tell you, sometimes, you know, as you're a pastor, you're preaching and you're looking at people. I'm not saying this is happening now, but I've seen this happen. You're preaching and they forget that you're actually looking at them. And while you're preaching the Word of God, people are texting, they're checking their Facebook pages, you know, they're doing all those kind of things. And I'm sitting here thinking, it's not me. It's God's Word. You need to have a healthy reverence. You have, have to have a healthy awe that you are in God's house. You, we are studying God's book. And if you do not have that, you cannot mature in Christ. Another uh, verse that also talks about this. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. There is a difference in the words discipline and chastise. Discipline is the kind of thing that you would do when you're a coach. You would put um, athletes like wrestlers, and you would discipline them in times of practice so they would ultimately do well when they are on the mat. So you have them, you discipline them in practice so they succeed in competition. And this is what the scriptures say God does for us. He sometimes puts us through difficult times, but those times are not to tear us down. Those are to build us up so we are more effective and more useful for him. He loves us. It would be unloving for him not to discipline us and train us. But the main thing I would like to point on is the next word, chastise. That means to correct. When we drift into sin, and there is no remorse, there is no repentance, there is no turning, there is no fighting, God gives us an opportunity to repent. But if we choose not to repent, 
here is a promise that he will correct us. Just like he did to the Israelites in the Old Testament when they wandered away from him. A period of time where he waits and gives the opportunity to repent. And they didn't. And off to Babylon they went. God loves us. When we choose not to repent of sin, he will correct us from sin. So we should have a healthy fear of God. That's the foundation of maturity. Now we've looked at the pietistic side of these verses. Let's look at the quietistic side of these verses. As we work out our salvation, God shapes our will and gives us the ability to accomplish the good plans he has for us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Paul details two ways that God actually does his work in us. The first one is this. God works in us by changing our will or changing our desires. He supernaturally changes our desires to be the desires that God wants for us and has for us. I have used this illustration maybe a few years ago, but I think it's okay. I'll try and use it again. When I was in college, like most college students, I loved to listen to music. Uh, my stereo was my pride and joy, like most college kids. I mostly listened to Christian music, but my roommates introduced me to some secular music. And there was some secular music I really liked to listen to. And I remember listening to this one album, which had a really catchy uh, sound to it. The Lord kept convicting me that these words are trash. This is not the kind of thing that God wants me listening to and repeating in my head. And I remember one afternoon, it was just really heavy conviction after listening to that album and enjoying that album, that I had to make a choice. I had to choose. And I remember saying, okay God, I'll make the right choice. I went up turned off that CD, put it in the cover, shoved it in the back of my stereo cabinet so I wouldn't see it. And I remember distinctly playing, praying, Jesus, please take away my desire for that music. I really like it. Take away that desire. It was a very sincere prayer. And then I went off to, to dinner at college. And it was about a week later when all of a sudden it just struck me out of the blue. I haven't thought about that album. I haven't listened to that album. I haven't even desired that album for a week when I played it every single day the week before. And what an interesting picture of how that bicycle works, right? God is the one who produced conviction of sin in my life. And then I knew I had to make a choice to obey him. Made that choice. And then what did he change? The desires in my heart. And that's the way that it works. That is spiritual maturity in action. And this, by the way, not doesn't just apply to maybe small things like what album do you listen to, but this applies to all things, especially when you're struggling with sin. Maybe it's you're struggling with alcohol. Maybe you're struggling with pornography. How do you mature out of that? Well, God begins by convicting you of it. And then you know you need to make some choices. If it's alcohol, you need to stop going to the bars. If it's alcohol, you need to get rid of that stuff out of your life. 
You need maybe get some of your friends out of your life who keep introducing it to you. You need to make the choice maybe to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. You need the choice, make the choice to go to celebrate recovery. You need to make those choices. But when the, you make those choices, and as you make those choices, God is at work in you, giving you the desire and ability to make those choices. The pedals are going around. And all of a sudden, somebody goes back a few years later, I used to live for the bottle, but now I don't even desire the bottle because God changed the desires of my heart. That's the thing that God does. The other thing he changes here, it says both to will and to work for our good pleasure. God works in us by giving us the ability we need to accomplish his work. The word for work here in the Greek is actually the word for energy. It's the word for strength. It's the word for stamina. A way to illustrate this is maybe with spiritual gifts. And most of us have heard about spiritual gifts. We know about spiritual gifts. When you come to Christ, not only are we born again, but God gives us at least one, maybe more, spiritual gifts to be able to serve the church. But the neat part about this is he doesn't just give us the gift, but he gives us the energy, the strength, and the stamina to be able to use that gift. Say it's hospitality. Uh, you have this desire to be hospitable to people. Did you realize that when you use that gift, that God will literally get behind you like wind in a sail and give you the strength, stamina, and ability to use that gift? As I was pondering this, an illustration came to mind. I don't think I've shared this one with you before. I have a friend of mine in North Carolina. His name is Charlie. He's a pastor of a rather large church there. He had the, uh, the privilege of marrying a woman who was actually related to Billy Graham. Like, I think it's, she's like the granddaughter of Billy Graham. Charlie uh, would get a chance to go to these family gatherings, and when Billy Graham was still alive, guess who was actually in the room? Billy Graham. And for Charlie, and for most pastors, Billy Graham is the ultimate hero. And Charlie had studied Billy Graham, and so one time he went up to Billy in the corner, and he said, I was really studying about the, the evangelism that you did in Madison Square Garden that went on night after night, and you kept presenting the gospel, and people kept responding to the gospel. How did you do that? And all Billy said was, it's all God. Now think about this in returns to the bicycle that we talked about earlier. Did God give Billy Graham a special gift of evangelism? Exactly. Yes. Did Billy study? Did Billy prepare? Did Billy work hard? Of course. But when it got beyond anything he had prepared for or studied for and beyond his own stamina even to continue going night after night in Madison Square Garden, who provided him the strength to carry him through? It was God. Now, by the way, I may have messed a little bit of that illustration up because I don't remember if it exactly was Madison Square Garden or not, but I do remember that conversation with Charlie and that how God works in us. Now, let's get into, well, I have a few minutes left. 
I'm not going to get all the way through this, the illustration uh, that Paul gives us and where we should apply this bicycle principle about us making choices for maturity, yet God working in us to make us mature. It has to do with our attitude and the attitude of not grumbling. Do all things without grumbling and arguing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Oh boy. He didn't say do some things without grumbling or disputing or most things without a grumbling attitude. He said do all things without a grumbling attitude. Say, well, that's really hard maturity. I don't know if I could ever do that. I mean, grumbling is actually my gifted area. But remember, we work at that, and yet at the same time, God works in us to enable us to accomplish that. The reason we know that we can do all things without grumbling and disputing is it's not completely up to our strength. It's God's strength also working in us. Let me disassemble uh, some of these words a little bit. Grumbling, what is it? It's a murmuring attitude on the inside of our life. And disputing, what is that? It's taking that attitude outside of our hearts by speaking it to other people. So, we are to be known as Christians as very different because of our attitude. We live in a world, as you know, that is all about grumbling, complaining, whining, negative talk about one person or another person. But we are to stand out as different in this world as we are the people who do not complain, do not grumble, and do not whine. A couple thoughts for you here, and we'll see how far we get. Number one, you know, Jesus was not a grumbler. We are not just to model our life after Jesus' humility, but Jesus' attitude. Did Jesus get angry? Yes, he got angry against sin. But he didn't get angry against his circumstances, did he? The other thing to tell you is this. Grumbling is a pride-filled attitude, not a humble attitude. It is whining about what we don't have instead of being grateful for what we do have. Grumbling is essentially saying, I deserve better than what I'm receiving right now. I shouldn't have to endure these difficulties right now. When the truth is, what do we deserve? We deserve the lake of fire. We deserve suffering for our sin, justice for our sin. We're not being given that. The next thing is this. Christians stay positive in a negative world by keeping their eyes on Jesus. The way to stay positive in all the negativity around us is to remember what we were. Then Jesus died for us. Jesus saved us. He put a new spirit inside of us. He totally changed our life in the past. And look at where we're going. We're going to heaven, our eternal home, where we're going to be brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ himself, the most blessed beings in the universe. Look at where we came from. Look at where we're going. 
Is it a little bumpy along the way? Mm, yes. But how could we have a grumbling attitude when we should be filled with a grateful attitude because of where we came from and where we're going? Grumbling is a, was a serious problem for the ancient Israelites. Remember, it's actually what kept them out of the promised land. And when Paul talks about grumbling here, he's actually sort of making a reference back to ancient Israel's. Think of the Exodus generation. Didn't they have so much to be thankful for? Remember where they were. They were in the situation where they were facing genocide. They are being told to throw all of their male babies into the Nile River to die. Yet, God intervened. He sent them Moses, who was a deliverer. God intervened and sent them ten plagues upon the Egyptians that brought one of the mightiest nations in that day crumbling to its knees. And when they went out of Egypt, many people forget this, they originally were slaves. They went out rich. The scriptures say that the Egyptians literally gave them their gold and silver and stuff as they walked out. I mean, God is so blessing them. And then when they were in front of the, the Red Sea, and they had the sea in front of them, and the army of Egypt coming behind them, God rescued them again. He split the Red Sea. They walked across on dry ground, and when the armies of Egypt tried to follow, they were completely drowned and destroyed. God was so good to them. And think of where they were heading the promised land, a great place to call home. Yeah, what did they do along the way? Grumble, whine, complain. Uh, well, we don't have enough to drink right now. Oh, we don't have any food. Oh, we do have food. It's manna, but it's always the same food. I don't like my diet. Oh, we don't like Moses. We think he's a bad leader. Grumble, whine, and complain. And they did that because they forgot the salvation God had done for them in the past, and they forgot the home to which they were going. And isn't that the same thing for us? When we forget the salvation God has given for us in the past and the home to which we are going, we will start grumbling, whining, and complaining, which is exactly what God doesn't want us to to do. What did God do with the grumbling, whining, and complaining? Ultimately, he destroyed the entire nation because of it. Because it is so wrong inside of God's people to be grumbling and complaining. We learned uh, a few weeks ago when we had done a little series on COVID that there was 12 spies that went into the land. But 10 spies came back and said, we can't do it. We can't conquer this land. And remember how fast that spread and how lethal that was? We looked at the scriptures that says the nation at that time was at least 1.2 million people. 10 spies infected 1.2 million people with that grumbling, complaining attitude. And as a result, none of them went in. Let me flip a little bit to the ends. I'm trying to watch my time here. Okay. Oh, excuse me. Let me flip here. Uh, 
I want to give you this quote. I'll read for you from John Newton. He says this, Suppose a man were traveling to New York to take possession of a large estate that was his through inheritance. On the way there, a mile before he arrived, his carriage broke down so that he had to walk the last mile. How evil it would be if he spent the last mile wringing his hands, complaining that he needed to walk when he was almost to his new home. In the same way, we must remember we are almost home to be with Christ. We are so close to our eternal inheritance. Will we have hard times in this life? Of course, but we can walk the last mile to our glorious inheritance with a smile on our face. Looking at the very last point here, our positive attitude in difficult circumstances helps us witness for Christ in a negative world. He says this, among whom we are to shine as lights in this world. God's desire is that in a negative world filled with grumbling, whining, and complaining, that we would stand out like a light in a dark room. A positive attitude, a joyful attitude, not brought down by our circumstances, but always keeping our eyes on Christ in those circumstances. And that our joyful attitude would make us stand out in this world. And the, the way we get the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ is when, when we live in this world with the very character of Jesus Christ. The character of Christ, that joyful attitude, is what changes our atmosphere and the way we live up around among others. And so it opens the good news to, news to the gospel. So let me just summarize two things here. Number one, we learned we are to work out our salvation. And how does that work? It's like riding a bicycle. God works in us, and yet we also have to make choices. It's both of us working together. And the other two things we learned, or the other thing we learned is this. We are to make sure that we work out our salvation in our attitude. We are not to be grumbling and disputing people like the world around us, but we're to be joy-filled people who focuses on what God has done for us in the past through Christ and focus on what God's going to do for us in the future in our eternal home. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. I ask that we would better understand what it means to mature in you this week. That you are working in us, yet we are working towards you. And I especially ask that you would help us to mature in our attitudes. That we would not be ungrateful grumblers like ancient Israel. But we'd be different. We'd be so thankful for what you have done for us in the past and what you're going to do for us in the future and how we are so blessed by you. I pray that you would help us to remember that when we go through difficult times in this life, it's not to destroy our faith. It's so that we could show our faith or that we can grow in our faith. That you love us. You have good plans for us, even if it's difficult times. And we thank you for that. 
We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.